0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: Welcome to Season 18, Week 5, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com. In the first two segments, we're going to start off in Carolina, so we're happy to bring on Darren York, Assistant General Manager of the Canes. Darren, thanks for coming on the show again. We always appreciate that.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Well, we didn't get much of a chance to talk to you after the draft. I bumped into you briefly, but there wasn't really an opportunity to talk about what transpired, uh, particularly in the second day. So we want to go over a couple of your draft picks from last year. And first off is – is, is Gleb Trezikov. Now the, he's a player that both Brad and I talked quite a bit about coming into the draft and our thoughts on, on him, I think collectively, I think both Brad and I were pretty similar in our, you know, assessments of him and considering what both our lists are, we had him quite high, but we weren't surprised that he sort of dropped where he did um, to you guys assessing him and looking at his potential moving forward and, and continuing development, Darren, what are your thoughts on him as an overall player
2: yeah i think um, from a projection standpoint he has you know as, as much upside as guys that were probably taking you know 30 to, to 40 players ahead of him um I, I think from from our perspective we look at his ability to, to understand time and space um, the ability to manipulate you know space with his with his offensive skills and, and carrying it into the to the offensive zone and then being able to to put the defenders on his back hip as, uh, you know, abilities that should help to to transition his game from, you know, pro in, in Russia to, to North America. So we're we're thrilled with um with the the offensive projection and being able to get that type of player a 60th overall.
3: Darren, you mentioned the offensive projection. I felt like some scouts shied away from him potentially because of the off-the-puck projection. I found that uh watching him further in the year, he helped squash some of that. Uh in in, in for me, anyways, we'll watch him because against uh, specifically in the playoffs at the MHL level against Stalnia and uh against Kresnaya, specifically Kresnaya, because they're a huge team, a heavy team. They play a more North American swarming style of defense. Uh, I thought he was tremendous in those series. Was that one of the reasons that you felt so comfortable with your evaluation, taking him where you did?
2: Yeah, like when he when he is engaged, he knows how to play in, in the defensive zone, um, and so it's not necessarily that he can't do it from a hockey sense perspective. It's just getting an understanding of that if you are a little bit more engaged defensively, you get more uh, you get more opportunities to play in the offense, which, you know, players like him love to, to do. Um, the the other thing that's always challenging is the NHL is not always the, the greatest structured league to begin with. So it's it's hard to say to a player that has this much offensive potential and sort of say, you know what, he can't play defense, but when he's not being held accountable or that's not really what's what's asked of him or asked of anyone really in that league, we really shouldn't hold that a, against GLEB.
1: You know, one of the other interesting things is it may be a tremendous benefit to your organization, but also to Gleb, is where he was drafted. And I find, look through the history, players that are drafted a little bit later just get that extra development time that almost all the prospects need, but they don't all get. And could it be a blessing in disguise that you know he's drafted 60th overall and there isn't this rush to bring him – into north america and push the development forward and let the player develop at cert- at a certain pace that he's most comfortable with and then at a certain point you bring him over.
2: Yeah, I don't I, I don't know if if we took him, you know, 30th overall, if we took him 60th overall, that really has any impact in terms of what we do from a development standpoint. I I think we you, know, you you gain information when you you go through the, the draft evaluation process and then every game after that once he's your property, you work with them and you can sort of add to add to your book on them and then figure out what you feel is the the best path for him so we'll we'll continue to to monitor um, love as we have now that he's uh, back from his latest injury here and we'll, we'll continue to, to work with him and try to get, you know, him where he wants to be and where we want him to be. And that's playing uh, significant minutes in the NHL. I
1: want to ask you about another Russian player you drafted last year in Alexander Perivalov. thoughts on his overall upside and what you've seen so far in about 14, 14, actually about 18 games already in, in Russia.
2: Yeah. I, I think um, getting loaned to, to Kulin was, you know, a huge benefit for for him and us. Um, now that he's getting a little bit more, well, he's getting a lot more opportunity to to showcase his talents against men, and it, it's been great. Um, I, I think you look at a player that uh, maybe doesn't have quite the same, you know, higher end offensive abilities as Trickosov, but the the overall game and the ability to to showcase some of that offensive ability with the ability to, to play without the puck with the ability to be, you know, hard to play against. Um, so I think it's been great for, for us to see him in a, in a bigger role playing in, you know, a very strong league. So we're, we're really happy with, with how this year has, has gone with him so far.
3: When you look at the the player style, he reminded me a little bit of Vasily Pakolzin, not, not skill for skill, but in terms of the the net front driving ability, the competitive nature of him, the ability to kind of be a, a hybrid player that can make passes, but also score is that kind of, is that power forward and versatility of him? Is that the main drawing points that you looked at when, when you were drafting? Him?
2: Yeah. Like I, I agree. Like there's, there is a little bit of this power sort of finesse forward, um, while still being maybe not the the tallest player but he plays he plays a little bit of that heavier style game and able to to drive possession and and he can put players on his back and just get to the net um at the same point he's really engaged um without the puck and he's going to be able to hunt and and get on you know the forecheck how we we love to play and he seems like he'd fit right into the to the style that you know we we play both in in carolina and in chicago
1: looking at his game and potential versatility does that give him you know additional value inside your organization because a player like that can be moved around the lineup a little bit and coaches tend to trust guys like that more readily than some players that are a little bit more singular skilled in one area or more dominant in one area
2: yeah like obviously um, there are very few players that you know get the skip you know, grades or get to skip certain, you know, whether it's the AHL or the NHL or have to start off on the fourth line. When um, you get a player like Seth Jarvis, you know, even, even he had to, to start a little bit on the fourth line during the player's trust, you know, so that may be a little bit easier for, um, for Alexander. He, he has shown, um, you know, this year that he can play on the fourth line and he can go play in the in the top 6 and still play a consistent style of game uh being hard to play against and being responsible as well as showing um some of the the offensive traits that he that he showed at the MHL level. Do
1: you like the fact as well as he's a right-handed shot could but plays on the off wing but play obviously can play both sides how much does that play into you know, when he comes over just having some additional versatility of blade play, playing both sides sometimes we take it for granted that a guy is equally as good on both sides of the wing left or right.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's obviously a little bit more common with, with uh, Russian players than it is maybe with, you know, can, Canadian or Americans. So again, what we'll try to do in the event or whenever he, uh, we decide that it's, it's time for him to, to make the adjustment. We obviously want to put him in a position to, to have the most success. So if that's, you know, for him on the left side, if it's him on the right side, we, we got to do what um, is best for the athlete and make sure that we're able to, to put him in a position to, to have success.
1: I sometimes find, uh, particularly obviously with the style of aggressive style that you guys play with your forwards, particularly in puck pursuit, that when you have a guy on his off wing, I find that is a little bit more disruptive to the defenseman because it's not the norm of what they're expecting. And defensemen have to make decisions at such a high clip.
2: Yeah, like it it really depends on, I guess, from a forecheck perspective, when and where the, the puck is getting placed. Um you're right. We we play aggressive. Uh it's it's something that you know Rod has instilled over the last four years and you know, for for these prospects perspective and, and especially For Alex it it suits his his makeup in the game because of how well he can be engaged away from the puck and how he wants to hunt the puck down in the in the offense. So
1: we're gonna take a short break on hockey prospect radio. We come back, we'll continue to talk about the Carolina Hurricanes with their assistant general manager, Darren York, right after these important messages.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back in power by Instat Hockey, offering the largest, largest video and library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We are speaking with the assistant general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes and Darren York. Uh, Darren, want to ask you about a couple of players in the previous draft, 2021, and Scott Morrow... Now, I always admit that I don't watch enough high school, and sometimes I don't quite under—I don't grasp the con, the the contextual nature and the nuances of that. I, I think it's it's something I think you have to see more often to sometimes um, get it all the time. So I'm always a little bit gun shy when it comes to high school players. But it was clear and evident that you know he had this offensive skill set from the back end that is intriguing and in many cases very hard to find at the nhl level goes into umass as a freshman and has an exceptional year which is very difficult for a freshman in a in a tough you know hockey east uh, conference and so far this year looks like he just picked up where he left off thoughts on his development from not only last year but then how he started this year as well
2: yeah Scott's um he's been great. I was actually just just in UMass with him, um, catching up with him, obviously watching the games. but his the the time it's taken Scott to adjust from high school hockey to you know the ten or so games that he played in the usHL in his in his draft year to to last year now to this year. it just doesn't seem like he needs any time to adjust. Um, the some of that is the way he processes the game, the the high end skill that he has, it, it just seems to him that at every grade that he graduates, it it just becomes easy and natural for him. So we we think that there is uh, a lot of upside with with Scott. We're thrilled that he's in you know a great situation to, to continue to work on his game, and we're just you know really you know excited for what the what the future holds for for Scott.
3: Uh, incredible dynamic talent at the line. The, the issue coming out of high school in my evaluations and hockey prospects was that, uh, he, he needed time to, to round out his game, obviously away from the puck. And there was a, I, I think the best way I would put it is energy inefficiency, meaning sometimes he, he would be able to, uh, to absorb a rush correctly and and, and do it at a pace that you're looking for. And other times it would almost seem like he he wasn't aware to do it. And that was coming out of high school and into the USHL. My question for you, Darren, is do you feel that he's he's shown uh, improvements on the defensive side of the puck at the college level? And, and how do you evaluate that uh, as he hits the AHL in the coming years here?
2: Yeah, I think every defenseman really needs to, to work on being a little bit more engaged and playing a little bit faster, especially how, you know, we ask our defensemen to to play. Um, you know, when he was playing high school hockey, he didn't really need to defend. He was better than everyone. And no disrespect to the players that he's playing. It's very challenging when you're so much more talented than than everyone else to to really, you know, exceed your your energy levels on, on the defensive side, knowing that he could just let them come to him, and then he'd take the puck up, and then he'd go into to end. Uh, so I, I think obviously he was challenged a little bit more in in hockey East and he's he has sort of adapted and played a little bit faster and working on his gaps and being a little bit more engaged offensively and there's going to be an adjustment level um when he he graduates college and goes to to pro the The good thing is he's he's not alone um and really the the positive thing and the thing that we're stressing is that he has attributes that very few players have um like he, when he gets the puck, he can he can make things happen with his skill. He can make things happen with his vision. He can make things happen with his with his feet and those tools. At six two and a right handed shot is you know it's really exciting for for us to watch what the future holds here for Scott
1: as he continues through his sophomore season. And by the end, if you guys think you know, it's always a balance with college players. If you think he's ready to make that jump into the pro ranks and say as a 20 year old, or, you know, takes that third season and plays another season just to be the man again. But there's always that balance of like, okay, how much is he going to learn at the college? And then is he better in the American hockey league? Uh, I'm sure, you know, that's always about, you know, it is a decision obviously has to be made, but it's a balancing act between, you know, what's best for his next step and how much he can absorb. And, from you know your evaluation he seems to be a person who has that attribute of adaptability um and resilience which is he finds a way to get back to that equilibrium of not too high not too low and gets back to that really quickly which is rare for somebody of that age
2: yeah like obviously you know right now he's you know him and us we're we're just concentrating on you know how having him play the the best or having him have the best season possible for for UMass going after a national championship so he'll you know I guess we'll have those conversations with with him or where he's at and what he's thinking in terms of the, what the future holds but really everyone's focus is is getting him better each and every day and making sure that he can he can help contribute to, to UMass run for a championship
1: I want to ask you about Alexi Himosami. and this is um, a guy that Brad and I talked about a lot in the draft year as well. And somebody that Brad had targeted early and um, we had a lot of interesting discussions about him after getting the opportunity to draft him and then, you know, start to evaluate him really closely as a player because he's yours thoughts on his development. And uh, what are the things that, about his game that really stand out to you?
2: Yeah, I think the, obviously the first thing is you know the ability to escape uh, again, as we, we talk about, you know quite a bit already on this on this segment. Here is how we want to play fast, and I I think with you know Himesami is he knows how to defend fast. He knows how to jump up in the play. Um, despite being a little bit shorter, he's incredibly competitive and and will fight for those added inches. He'll box out in front of the net. Um, getting the, their team unfortunately isn't having the the best start of the year, and he's you know he's tied for. Uh, with three goals, tied for their league, uh, or tied for their um, for their lead on the team.
3: I I didn't get an opportunity to see him last year, Darren and Asat, but I imagine he didn't get uh, a ton of minutes. Uh, how is he deployed this year, and are you happy with with where he's where he is uh the system he's in in Asat?
2: Yeah, like last year, he it was sort of a little bit up and down, and then he got hit with COVID, and that sort of limited you know the, his ice time this year. Um, he started off in the top four, got a little bit banged up, and now he's back and you know, playing a significant role, which was what we expected him to to play. Um, just given that the the hockey sense is strong with with his ability to sort of play, you know, fast offensively in terms of getting the puck up to the forwards and then jumping up or playing fast offensively and sealing off and in, in ending plays. So we're we're excited here again with what the, what the future holds for him. And then when his season's over, uh, you know, he's already signed. So we can, we can start working on the, the next steps for, for his pro career.
1: One of the things I like to look at for, you know, more undersized players, like defensemen, particularly under, you know, six feet tall, like Alexi is, is their willingness to box out and their willingness to battle and, you know, and do all those dirty things, even though they don't have the weight and the power and the man strength yet because i think once he gets that that just i think it'll make him far more effective in the defensive zone and i think some people will underestimate his abilities in that way because he's had to play that way to make up for you know the lack of range and size and weight
2: yeah like it's um you know if you're able to take away time and space if you're able to well, you're going to have to be, you know, competitive in the NHL because of how good the league is, and you know, we feel that Alexi has shown two of those traits, you know, pretty consistently since his since his draft year. His game really hasn't changed when he plays against, you know, his own age group. I guess going back to the U18s and and um, the the junior league up, but when now he he playing against men, he's still able to to take away hands. He's still able to to get into those battles. And again, it's, he doesn't play that, you know, that small game.
1: I mean, since he's also still 19, forget how young they really are, with the opportunity to come back and play at the world juniors again, how much do you think that's helpful in, in the development cycle for him is that he goes to play with his peers and it's kind of like a measuring stick of understanding where he is. Cause he's playing against obviously men that are bigger, stronger, faster in some respects and more mature. But then he can take a look at what he's done against his peer group and then bring some of that back to um, Liga as well.
2: Yeah, like uh, first, it's an it's obviously an incredible opportunity. Anytime you get these these athletes get to represent their country and to try to get a little bit of normalcy. Um, you know, the, unfortunately, they had the the first World Juniors last year taken away, you know, cut short for them, and then the the summer one probably wasn't, you know the the best because it's it's been a long year for all these players and now you get back into a normal year so it will be a good measuring stick obviously he's had a little bit more experience now in that tournament to know what it's to expect but given that it's a small sample it's it's not just the the be-all end-all you want to be able to see you know his his assets shown in you know versus the best players in his age group and we expect to to be able to see that um given that he's already done it for you know two and a half tournaments already.
1: Darren, want to thank you very much for coming on the show. We always appreciate it, and good luck through the season.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Uh, That's Darren York, Assistant General Manager of the Carolina Hurricanes. Brad and I are going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio.
1: Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and brought to you by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. I'm happy to bring on Scott Lewis, Director of Amateur Scouting for the Vegas Golden Knights to talk about some prospects in their system. Scott, thanks for coming on the show again. I always appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Shane. Let's chat about uh, some players that I just want to get some update on them. And the first one is Zach Dean. Like, in his draft year, I was really intrigued by him And I know there's some other players in that draft class that had greater offensive production, but what really stood out to me was his versatility to play in a lot of different situations on the ice, penalty kill, power play, last minute, um, you know, head to head against the top teams and trying to shut them down. Last minute of periods, last minute of games, when you needed a goal, like he's a clutch goal scorer, like, Almost 50% of his goals were either a first goal, insurance goal, game-winning goal. Uh, to me, that, that shows his mental, emotional resilience and be able to like get him back to an, like, a mental state where he can just handle that type of pressure. So to me, that really stood out. Um, and the fact that I think he's a dual threat. I think his shooting ability and the passing ability is equal. And for me, when you have a centerman like that, when you get into the NHL, it just provides the coaching staff – a lot of options to put him around in the roster and makes him, I think, a more valuable player. If you're not just looking at the point production at a junior level, because I think his points will just, you know, some players just transfer points over. They go, Oh, I got almost like 50 points in junior, and they end up getting 50 points in the pro. And they're like, Shouldn't he have got more points in junior? It's just that he plays the game so much like a pro.
4: Yeah, no, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there with, with Zach. You know, his biggest thing is his versatility. He's got uh, all those assets and attributes that you described, which did pop in his drafter, but more importantly, they've carried over as he's developed in, in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. And that's what has our organization the most excited is the fact that maybe he's hard to describe coming in as a pro, you know, next season. Like, what is he when we talk to our minor league coaches and our NHL head coach and you know, it's not necessarily what you see is what you get. It's what he provides in that secondary layer of, uh, of support and versatility because maybe his projected identity is still remaining to be seen based on the fact that he provides all those things that you just discussed. I mean, the biggest thing is is that the 50-50 production in regards to uh, goals and assists, He that means he can complement any type of player so you can move him around the lineup, move him up and down the lineup, He's good on special teams. He has character, so he's one of those things when you're looking at a pick in the later first round. Maybe he doesn't have that star potential, but he's got a lot of uh, meaningful attributes that are going to make him a very good player down the line.
1: Well, I, you know, the biggest issue, obviously, for anybody who's evaluating, is trying to project out that you know that five year, six year down the road of what is he going to be when he's 23? What is he going to be when he's 24? And then you look at teams that are successful in the playoffs they always have a guy like Zach Dean. And a lot of the times they play somewhere in that second to third line role, depending on, you know, what the depth they have at center because the coach can rely upon him. Like if I was sort of explaining him to your coaching group in Henderson, I'm like, he's the guy that you're going to be comfortable with putting in any situation, regardless of his age, because he's just dependable. He's not going to make critical errors. And if he does, he's just, I think he is, he has a real high level adaptive processing. Like when I watch him plays, he doesn't make the same mistake over and over again. He seems to figure things out and figure players out quickly that he's playing against. Oh, wait a minute. They're going to beat they They seem to be able to beat me in this situation. So I have to adjust here and here. And sometimes that takes players games to do. And for him, it's more to like periods and shifts where that's where I really, I really like his game is how quickly he can adapt and overcome.
4: Yeah. Well, his IQ speaks for itself in in, in those situations that you just described. I mean, it's more shift to shift, especially we, you know, we noticed that at a couple of rookie camps that we had in regards to maybe a slow start in the first period, but then all of a sudden, bang, he's, he's changed his approach. He's winning face-offs. He's going into a different area of the ice. He's winning battles uh he's effective on the pk he has the ability to adjust and adapt on the fly which at you know at the nhl level and pace of play is so important
1: yeah and i i think with patience this player is going to be you're going to look back and go boy that's like that was a really high value pick uh i just think he's a guy that helps you win in the playoffs and when you're picking like you were picking later in the draft like you did when you got zach i think that's where the value really lies. Uh, I want to ask you as well about another player in that, in that draft class in Daniil Cheka, who came over as a Russian, uh, went to the OHL, played with Guelph. And I thought he, he adjusted extremely well. That's a sometimes a hard thing to do, particularly for defensemen, different style of play, different culture, different lifestyle. But I thought because of his range, he's a rangy lanky defenseman that takes a, away a lot of time and space Um, and he has good enough footwork where he can you know move veer guys off I thought his angles and his gap you know improved as he came through like the rest of that season but then I thought his puck retrievals and moving the puck up the ice effectively was really good for someone who came into the OHL thoughts on like his adjustment to the OHL and then You know, now he's jumping into the American League in Henderson for his first three games. And talk a little bit about his game and that adjustment in the Ontario League.
4: Well, I think he's going through that same process now in the American Hockey League, Shane. I mean, you described exactly what happened in his OHL season. It's a matter of adjusting to time and space, quicker decision-making, adjusting to uh, the different pressures of of the game that are applied at the pro level. I mean, the biggest thing is, is, you know, those young defensemen, they need that mileage. They need need to learn to identify and execute the proper play consistently and, you know, with effectiveness and efficiency. And he's got length in his game. He's really good, like you said, on the puck retrievals. His first pass uh, effectiveness is really good, and it's only getting better. Uh, You know, he he closes strong when he needs to, and he provides a great two-way presence, you know, on projection. He just needs that uh, pro mileage to bring all those attributes together.
1: I think sometimes we forget – when we're watching a player play, how young they are. And of course he's going to turn uh 20, did he turn 20 already? So he just turned 20 sure. end of October. So he's only 20. So, and like you said about getting games played and, you know, looking at some of my past research of the guys that actually made it, the amount of games played prior to turning pro. And then that, especially for defensemen and the number of games played, at pro level before at the American league, before they went into the NHL, like really full time, you know, you're looking at sort of that 200 games played in that kind of area, that two and a half years to get all those repetitions necessary. Is that something you guys are looking at in terms of Daniel? Like once he gets those reps and he's, it becomes almost um automatic. His decision becomes automatic in many cases, because the game comes so fast that, you know, he, takes a peek, looks back, goes in to retrieve, knows where his options are, and then can make those plays. And then like learning how to handle those bigger, stronger, faster forwards that he didn't have to handle in in Ontario.
4: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. When you look at Nicholas Haig and his development process that we had from our, our first draft, and, and the more of time he spent in Chicago in the American Hockey League with the Wolves. And now you look at the player that he's become with that that mileage that I, I previously mentioned. And Danil's going to go through the same process. We've got a very competitive situation in Henderson with our our young defense this year, and Danil's going to have to create some separation in time. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And he's going to learn from the coaching staff, he's going to learn from our development staff, And, you know, those little nuances that those young defensemen have to, like you say, make automatic in order to be effective at the national hockey level, he'll acquire those. But it doesn't doesn't all come at once.
1: What are your thoughts about the advantage of having your American League franchise just down the road from your parent club and being able to have all your player development staff in one place? Coaching staff is close by. Management is close by to have a greater ability to monitor and assess players like on the fly so there isn't that time gap between having to travel all over the place and so that that type of more synchronous type of development how much does that help not only the the organization but you guys in the amateur staff of being able to have that direct communication and everybody's in the same place
4: yeah well those those things that you mentioned are all obvious uh, in regards to logistical, you know it's great for us at amateur meetings to come in in January and see our pro team play and see our American league team play. And then that way we can get a chance to, to see the guys that we draft and see how they're developing, speak to the coaches, you know what are, what are they working on? what does he need to improve on? You know were we right about this guy needing to be stronger and that affecting his game. And you know there's lots of positives with it. and maybe maybe we're a special uh, a special market in regards to the city that we play in. But it allows our young guys to adjust to uh, perceived Las Vegas lifestyle um, sooner rather than later. Like they're not dropped in after a couple of years playing in a, in a, a farm team in a different location. They're in the city. They're going to play in the National Hockey League, and so they're they're used to it. They know the lifestyle. They know where to go to eat. They know where to to go for schooling for their children and all that. It's just a matter of of a level of comfort, so they can just be the best player they can be in the end.
1: Question about. Um, And this is something that I actually learned from uh, one of your colleagues in Vegas, Von Carpen, is how how important it is for when you guys come in for your scouting meeting, for the amateur guys, to get get them to see live pro. Because you're so busy chasing players at the amateur level that sometimes I always found I can get caught in tunnel vision. And Vaughn said, make sure you get out like every week, go see American league games, go see NHL games. So it sort of dials your perspective back in. So your lens isn't so narrow so that you're looking at a player an amateur going, Oh, he, I think he might be ready. And you go watch an American league and you like, and you rethink, Oh, maybe not. He's not even really remotely close to being ready.
4: Yeah. Well, you always have to, you know, See where the bar is at, right? You you know, once the guys come in and see the National Hockey League, they go, "Oh, geez, that guy. I thought he was close, but he's got some work to do." And then when we see the American League team play, we say, "Okay, well, this guy he can play there next year, and you know, develop." That's why it's a process with most of these players. I mean, the high-end guys they step in and it's a seamless transition. But for the majority of NHL players, there's a process that they have to go through. And 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 from a scouting perspective. You know, you have to know where that bar is. You have to know what the standard is. You know, if you look over the last 10 years of the game, the improvement in the overall pace of play has been phenomenal. Whereas now we're going to junior games and we're seeing guys that skate for the most part. All of them are good skaters. Whereas 10, 12 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, you'd have a couple guys that just, you know, didn't have the same pace, didn't have the same legs, but had good hands, could shoot the puck. So there was that, okay, well, if he gets the skating, he can play. And that was what the time the minors had to do. But that's not a race. You have to be able to skate at, at not only the NHL level, but the American League level. And unless you see that live as an amateur scout,
1: you might not be aware of it. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back on Hockey Prospect Radio right after these messages. <music>
0: Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back on Hockey Prospect Radio powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. we we'll are continuing to talk about the Vegas Golden Knights prospects with their director of amateur scouting, Scott Luce. Scott, I want to ask you about uh, Brendan Bresson, and I, w- I found him in a really intriguing prospect. Obviously, he had an excellent year last year with university of Michigan Um, looked like he was ready to turn pro got that cup of coffee, which I really like when teams do that gives the team gives the player an opportunity to understand what the American league is like and not get thrown into the big end of the pool Um, thoughts on how he played last those last seven games in the regular season. Then he got a couple playoff games. How much do you think that helped him um, transfer into this season?
4: Well, I think, you know, he had an outstanding year. He threw in the Olympics in there yeah. played at the University of Michigan. He came into Henderson as advertised, scored, produced offense. Uh, and like you say, got that playoff experience. I think that gave him a sense of, okay, I, I'm, I'm close. I'm, I'm closer than maybe I thought or I'm more ready. And that coming into camp this year, you know, it was so important for a young player to have. It. When you're a scorer, you have confidence. You know, it's now a matter. It's now a matter of gaining that confidence to start the season and letting it snowball, and that's the process that he's going through now. And uh, you know, but having that experience last year, he knows he can do it already. So that's half the battle as he gets the you know mentally and physically or, or mentally and psychologically adjusted to this season.
1: When I see players, they, you know, they maybe get a year or two in junior, then they go to college. I'm always wary when they leave after the first year. I think it's a, regardless if you're drafted in the first round or not. I think that second year is really important because I think it allows you to be the man on your team. Um, even though you may be highly skilled, there's other aspects of your game that needs to mature. And I like to see a player be the man on their team before they make that jump. To the next level, how important do you think it was for Brennan's development to just come in and be like the number one player in terms of like not just offensively but defensively in his role with the University of Michigan?
4: Well, I think it's all about confidence and it's a state of mind, right? And I, I agree with your assessment 100%. Sometimes teams like to bring guys out early because maybe their depth chart dictates that, but when you, when you in an ideal situation, you want it to be a situation where they're ready both physically, mentally, and production-wise and play-wise to turn pro. And in Brennan's case, that's exactly what happened at Michigan. And it could have been easy to turn him pro after that first year, but I think the second year really enabled him to take that next step in his play away from the puck and work on his play away from the puck because we know he's got the good one-timer shot on the power play. He's a goal scorer. But to allow his skating to get a little bit better and his play away from the puck got a little bit better and now he's ready to go and he's he's a pro hockey player now and he's just gonna get better.
1: When I ask you about Lucas Cormier, I obviously I'm out in the maritime, so I get a chance to see the Q play a lot. And I thought he was an intriguing prospect for you guys. I know not a lot of like defensemen five ten or or smaller make the NHL, but I think he has the the ability to make that jump because of his hockey sense but also his situational awareness defensively. I think that just got so much better. And he was another guy who I thought really needed to come back to that fourth year in the queue and just get as many reps and play against the best players and be forced to like be the number one defenseman and handle all the situations, not just offensively, but everywhere. And I thought that was going to help his transition into the American league a little bit smoother than, than if he maybe had left a year earlier.
4: Yeah, well, he, he really stood out in our rookie tournament this year for those very things that you mentioned. He's no longer just a one-dimensional guy, an offensive guy, a power play guy. This guy's play away from the puck and defending against players. He's worked on his angles. He's worked on his stick work. You know, his defendability at the pro level is only going to get better, and he made huge strides last year in, in doing that, and that enabled his transition like you say, it's going to go a little bit faster now because he doesn't have to adjust as much because he's already prepared for himself. He's already prepared himself for this big step.
1: Question: How much of of the conversations you had with with Jim Holton in in Charlottetown about next steps for, you know, for Lucas Cormier in terms of his development, what he needs to work on? Because I always find that the teams that are a little bit more progressive and junior like to work in conjunction with the NHL teams. Cause it not only just helps the player develop, but helps the players like the other players that are not your property develop as well.
4: Yeah. Well, we're very fortunate. Jim had NHL experience, so he knows what the game's like at that level. Uh, Jim was one of our assistant coaches in Florida when I was with the Panthers and uh, he really helped Lucas, you know, he just said, Hey, listen, if you want it to be a seamless transition, you got to work on these things on a consistent basis and Will Will Nicola, our director of player development, worked with Jim and Lucas, and that was really evident. The improvement was really evident uh, in his defensive play, and Jim definitely played a big role in that and, and held Lucas accountable. Uh, sometimes junior guys let their horses run, and uh, Jim was the other way. He made him accountable and said, "If you want to be a better pro, you got to work on these things." So we're, we're very thankful for that.
1: Does it help that you know you can give? video of players uh, like with his skill set of that size in in the NHL and say look these guys can be super successful and this is how they do it you look at like you know Jared Spurgeon in Minnesota or Tory Krug right in St. Louis and you know similar bodies similar styles but they can be super effective and here's some of the things that you have to work on looking at what their games like
4: well I, I think it's definitely there I mean even when we, we draft players you know we'd like to say you know we'd like to ask them you know who they compare themselves to, who they can see themselves as. And it's not who their favorite player is. It's what do you think you can be in the NHL? And a lot of times uh, guys, you know, give yeah. answers that are just, you know, not, not in the same stratosphere, but for the guys that give the answers that are very correct and, and honest, and then they follow up with that with, like you say, the video, work. it helps them visualize their future. They can, you know, watch the NHL games, watch the highlights, and see themselves doing that role down the line. And that's the starting process there is basically identifying what your what your role is going to be, what your identity is going to be as a pro, and and learn from those guys that play a similar role at this point in time.
1: Well, that's what, When I have conversations with prospects, especially going into the draft, I ask those questions. I'm always curious about the self-awareness of the player. Do you really know who you are? You know, I may not always be right in that assessment, but if they're way off, it's like that to me is a red flag of like, are you sure? Like, I don't like question them hard, but I, you know, Scott, we, I'm sure you guys do the same thing. You kind of like re-question them again, right? Just to make sure. So I always find that process interesting as well. I want to thank you very much for coming on our show. Always appreciate the insight of your prospects and good luck through the season and safe travels.
4: Thanks a lot, Shane. Have a good day.
1: That's Scott Lewis, Director of Amateur Skyden for the Vegas Golden Knights. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio. Your voice for prospect news and analysis. On Sirius XM, NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We're back and brought to you by Outside Edge Hockey, hockey player development at OutsideEdge.ca. We're happy to bring in a regular guest of ours, Pat Malloy. He's a player development skills and skating coach with a a great uh, record of helping players get into the NHL and and be more successful. And we're going to continue on with some additional topics uh, this season. So really excited to have him back on. And this week's topic is the use of technology in developing technical skills that translate to tactical performance. So that was a bit of a mouthful for me, Pat, but... I want to uh, to ask you, from your perspective, sort of the definition of that, and then and then if you and then for for me and for our listeners, is get into how, what that looks like from a player development standpoint.
5: Yeah, for sure. You know, in today's day and age, where we've got you know an abundance of technology, really, you know, the first thing for me was figuring out all right, what ways can we enhance a player's ability to grasp things that allow for performance within a game, you know, video obviously has been around for a great period of time, but ultimately how do you use those things Is video, a tool we use for sure, but how can we use it to enhance a player's learning and and ultimately their adaptability to new concepts or techniques that will allow them to tactically perform. Um, So you know, when looking at these different options and, and sort of what's available out there, it's exciting because you know while there's a lot of technology there's not necessarily a lot that um, until you start to really dig and look for it is something that becomes a tool at the coaching level and so you know through going the the trial and error and finding out the things that add value you know we've identified some things that certainly can make a difference when it comes time to uh, tactically enhancing a player's ability to perform and really breaking it down and reverse engineering it to you know, what techniques, what technical aspects of a, of a player's skill set uh, can we impact with use of technology?
3: Pat, can you go over some of those different skills that you have found in the last couple of years uh, when it comes to acquiring maybe new uh, technical elements, such as one One for me that I've noticed the last two to three years specifically, and it's, it's universal now, is uh, at the beginning phase of a deke, if it's a smaller forward, they look to actually stick check the longer, larger defenseman stick, while simultaneously performing performing the the, the the beginning, middle, and end phase of the deke. Is that something that's been implemented uh, through the type of technologies that you're uh, referring to now? <laughs>
5: Yeah, I mean, those are those are certainly some of the areas from a technical standpoint that'll wind up in a tactical setting. And things that we'll use, you know, I use a lot of on ice video. It's great for immediate feedback during a training session. And some of what we're able to do, obviously, with, with on ice ability, um, you know, bringing a tablet or technology with the sorts of apps and things that you can manipulate and put side by side footage on. You can take a game clip and put it beside a training clip and give, number one, you know, accurate and game use feedback is is obviously a huge thing, but having players recognize, you know, entry phase, um, you know, where do I initiate this portion of a technical deep, for instance, to create a reaction in a defender. And, And the great part of that is that immediate feedback, that breakdown that you're able to see at ice level versus having them conceptualize it certainly becomes fuel that they can use Um, you know, going forward to try to make small, minute, little micro adjustments, I'll call them, and maybe some of the things that they can do, you know, to ultimately get a defender to do things they're trained not to do. And so, you know, uh, we'll use that quite a lot because that immediate feedback, that ability to change angle, blow things up, slow them down, speed them up in terms of uh, immediate feedback is really crucial in terms of laying pathways for a new level of performance.
1: Actually, Pat, I'm glad you brought that up in terms of the feedback loop between the coach and the student. Well, regardless of what age that player is, they're still a student and you're still a coach. How important is it to be able to implement some of these different technologies to help the feedback loop? Because for players, they're playing at such a high speed and you have to build in those habits so that it becomes autotelic. in in many respects so that it, it, it becomes habit forming, but also then there's that, there's a psychological positive feedback for them. Like, Oh, I did this so many times and it's actually, I start to see it bear fruit. So what Pat is telling me, okay. And then we go back to the training session and we keep, you keep implementing different types of drills that have, you know, tactical, um, advantage. So once you're performing on the ice, so that the player can, you know, do it with you, use the technology, play, come back, and then, you know, kind of close that feed le- back, that f- feed loop, and then just keep it going.
5: Absolutely. I mean, when, when we take a look at, you know, give you an example, you know, a player's in the National Hockey League, they've got a, a five game block, and they'll say, well, I've had 15 shots in five games. What's going on? Well, it's it's really easy then to create that loop of, right, here's those 15 shots uh, that you've, you know, experienced and why aren't we scoring? Well, we can start to see, all right, environment that they're occurring, you know, are they off the pass? Are they, are, you know, are the shots resulted off of a catch? Are they off of broken plays? Where do they originate from? But then we can start to look at from a technical standpoint. Are we just trying to power up and create a linear shot motion? Or is there deception based in our habit of skills. Do we, you know, conceptually do we change angle as one of our base habits when we shoot a puck and we recognize, all right, well maybe ninety percent of the pucks I've shot, there was really little to get people to do things they're trained not to do. So example, I don't have a real great level change or angle change in my shooting motion as a base habit. I'm just trying to power up and kill shots. Well I think we know when we put all the numbers together all tenders that are set and ready are typically in an advantageous position, you know, compared to a shooter that brings average to below average shooting skills or habits to it. So one of the things we can do is look at that feedback loop and say, based on these 15 shots, we know there's some habitual things that we want to start to attack in terms of creating a little bit more higher percentage opportunity to finish on the chances that we get. And so things like that on ice video become very important. You know, digging a little deeper when we're maybe looking to uh, develop a a skater's explosion. One of the things that, you know, we'll do a lot in a gym, for instance, is things like a force plate. Is it a physical attribute? Is there things from a a power production standpoint that as an athlete we need to improve? But The skating motion itself is very interesting. And so now with the advance of technology, we can use almost miniaturized force plates in the bottoms of players' skates where we can start to see, all right, there's, a, there's an inequity from a right leg to a left or vice versa and we can start to diagnose, alright we get very strong power activation and thrust from our right leg versus our left and then we can start to dig into the why, is it an athletic issue, is it a technique issue and so there's another example of things from a technical standpoint that we can impact with use of newer technology.
3: How important is it for you to be able to reverse engineer through through video uh, when you're looking at uh, how goals are scored? For instance, like in the NHL now, we know primarily through be able to track uh, the results and be able to see through video that low to high danger lateral passes are one of the most important aspects when it comes to creating a goal. Because as you said, the goalie doesn't get to be a, uh, an opportunity to set be set in time. Uh, do you ever look at the 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 conclusion of what leads to a goal and then basically reverse engineer and draw back and look at, look at the steps that then, uh, that then created the effect of the goal uh, and then say, okay, where can a player uh, improve in terms of how he set up this lateral pass. And then on the other side of that, how the skating pattern of say the backdoor option that came down the wing uh, to result in the, in the goal itself. Is that, is that kind of the, how you look at it and draw from it?
5: similar i mean the genesis of of certainly of a scoring chance we'll certainly look at origin and location um but you know ultimately a lot of times where we'll go with it is is you know typically a goal scorer is is the non-possessing player that winds up scoring the goal you know it's rare especially in the national hockey league to start a play and finish it all with the puck in your stick so it really you know we'll start to look at um, the idea is of puck acquisition. where Where am I going to acquire a puck? Uh, and what you know what movements? And so from that perspective, starting to see the trends of um, pattern recognition. Am I putting myself in places that support a um, a goal scoring opportunity, support you know my possession, uh, my my teammate that has possession of the puck? And then when we sink it back down, is is shot selection appropriate to where I've acquired the puck? Um, and so there's a, you know quite a bit that goes into it, you know starting with location and origin of play is certainly something. But I think from a tech, you know using the, the technology available to us, really that pattern recognition of recognizing, you know if I'm all around the puck or I'm creating opportunities, but they're from lower percentage areas, are the the things I'm doing for acquisition of the puck appropriate with producing at a higher level and so things like that video where we can take opportunities and and take a little more granular look at you know, am I in the spots to create the best opportunity for success? And what does that look like? And be able to use comparable video and, and you know, sometimes it's video from your own team or someone that's having success, or sometimes it's video of, of the that individual player when they were doing things at a little bit higher rate and, you know, might consider themselves slumping. What's changed? What things are you doing? Are you, are, you know, is the other team playing you harder or are you maybe not doing some of the things or have lost your way um, that allowed you to have success in past and got away from some of those skills and
1: habits. Pat, great topic this week. Really look forward to uh, the next following weeks as we delve into the, into the subject matter uh, more deeply. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show again. We always appreciate and safe travels. Appreciate it guys. Always, uh, always a pleasure. That's Pat Malloy, uh, skills coach, player development. Uh, Brad and I are going to take a short break. We'll be back on Hockey Prospect Radio right after these messages.
0: You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen.
1: We are back in powered by Outside Edge Hockey, Hockey Player Development at OutsideEdge.ca. We're now going to discuss the 15th annual Primetime Sports and Entertainment Conference that will be at the Toronto Western Harbour Castle on November 10th to the 12th. I've been at this conference now. I think this is my ninth year, could be 10th. I'm starting to lose track because I've been at it so many times. And so I want to have this discussion with Patrice Wiffen, the Director of Marketing and Events and Media, about the value of this conference to the hockey industry and why it's so critically important regardless of the position you're in whether you're in hockey operations or whether you're on the business side to come to a conference like this i love it because of the fact that there's an opportunity to discuss best industry best business practices across the globe but then also bounce your own personal ideas strategies tactics things that you've developed in an environment that's more inviting and more interested in that. So Patrice, thank you very much for coming on our show. I really appreciate it.
6: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, very exciting. Let's
1: talk about the evolution of this conference. And you, I remember, um, you know, you tell me off air when you started, um, you're an intern and helping out behind the scenes, getting things organized. And now to this point, as when I go to this conference like you're the puppet master you're controlling what's going on and making everything run smoothly and and brian burke and and your dad you know they go around and they and they get things done but it's really i you know if i have a question you're the person i'm asking talk about that evolution from when you first started to what it's grown into now because it is the premier event for sports and entertainment in canada
6: yeah, thank you for saying that. And I, I would agree, although my opinion is probably a little more biased being on the inside. Uh, when, when it began, it began in 2008. So uh, when it began, Brian and Trevor came together and they wanted to create something uh, very special uh, within the sports marketing, sport management world. And that's on field, on court, on ice, but also, as you mentioned, the business side. So you know, working people working in corporate partnerships and ticketing and um, marketing and public relations and all the different facets of the sport world because it's so extensive. Uh, Brian and Trevor wanted to create a platform for people in the industry to debate hot topics, to talk about best practices, to share best practices, uh, but also provide an opportunity for those people to network not not only with uh, industry executives but also. Uh, with the next generation, the, the people kind of working their way up the ranks. And so one of the things that they really wanted to do was create this place where we could do this in Canada, because at the time in 2008, there were a lot of these in the States, but there really wasn't something that filled this void in Canada. So we were sending so many Canadians down to the States. And, and I mean, we we love our American partners, but there we wanted to create something in Canada that allowed the Canadian market to uh, not have to travel to the States to to be able to uh, enjoy this sort of event. And so um, we now are privileged to have people from all across Canada, all across the United States, in Europe, we've had people from Asia, we've had people literally from, from everywhere across the globe, which is so cool to see kind of that growth. But that very first year in 2008, uh, there was not um, anything really kind of out there like it but when it launched it was definitely on a small scale so I think I've heard both Brian and Trevor uh kind of joke that the first year we had 40 speakers and maybe 40 paid delegates in the room so the the ratio was was pretty interesting there in that first year and and I was an intern in that first year kind of learning from the sidelines uh, a little bit about event management and and what um sort of went into running an event of this magnitude and it's just continued to grow Year after year, uh, from our corporate partnership support, uh, MLSC has been our presenting partner for the last several years, and is always a great uh, organization to be involved with, uh, because they they ultimately um, have a massive sport footprint within Canada. But they also are are known for being, you know, the innovators, the people who are the game changers in the industry, and and bringing those best practices to the forefront. So having MLSC's involvement. Um, has really helped to continue to uh, grow this event and um, our from our partnership support to our support on the academic side and having schools involved um, seeing different delegates come on board seeing people who started as a delegate now coming back as a speaker or someone who started as an intern coming back as a speaker it's just been so cool to see this growth and this evolution and um, I, I I mentioned that when we started in 2008, we had 40 speakers and 40 delegates. Um, when we came back post-COVID um, in 2021, um, we were pleased to have you know over 70 speakers and over 600 people in the room. So it's really cool to see that growth and um, that continued growth and that continued interest. And to me, it's kind of like, I, I know you mentioned, I'm, I'm running around I don't get to see a ton of the panels start to finish, that's for sure. But um, it's very cool to see some of the, the same faces year after year who are coming to this event to debate those hot topics, to continue to network. It's almost like a, a sports business family reunion each year. Um, and so it's it's been cool to see the the progression, but also um, just how it's, it's sort of changed and evolved and uh, really excited for the 15th year.
1: One of the things I really appreciate about it is the inclusion of the students. So they have an opportunity to meet not only delegates, but people that are more senior in the business world and sports business and be able to make those connections. And I've had people from that conference, young students contact me and I could email them back and, and we could sort of like share back and forth so they can get a little guidance. And I think that's just as rewarding for people like me and other delegates that those students attend. And I like every time I bump into students like this is the place you want to go because networking is so critical, but it's your also opportunity. You may find a mentor there. You may find somebody that actually helps you with your career long-term.
6: Absolutely. It's honestly, uh, we, it's incredible to see the student support of this event as well. They make up probably about a quarter of um, attendance each year. And it's been very cool to see the uptake of, of those students. And and oftentimes they are students who, you know, they they want to learn. They want to grow. They want to... Uh, really expand their reach in in this industry. And uh, this conference is so unique in that you get face time with those people and, and not just speakers, as you mentioned, but also people in the room who you never know who you might be sitting beside and where those conversations can lead to. And um, it's great for the student demographic to be able to not only uh relate what they're learning in the classroom to real world examples that are being debated and and discussed in the panels and the the keynote interviews, but also um, have that opportunity to create those lasting connections before they're out of school because once they have and and I, I don't mean this disparagingly, but once they have their piece of paper, you know when i when I finished school I had my piece of paper, but so did all of my peers. So what set me apart from all of my peers that I was graduating with well, it was a lot of the connections that I developed, the industry experience that I'd received. So um, it's been really great to see the the student support of this event, and it continues to grow. and And we're really pleased to continue to have um, that support from students of of all ages. Whether we've had some people from even high school come out to this event, uh, and then all the way to you know um, PhD and and MBAs and and sort of um, different grad schools. So it's been. Uh, amazing to see the support of the students, and and ultimately this is what Brian and Trevor wanted to do: is give back to everyone in the industry, including the the next generation.
1: What's the next step in terms of evolution? Technology certainly as will help us in that regard of having people maybe in satellite um, locations for this turn for this you know, type of event where maybe they can't quite get there, but we can set them up in that respect or having you guys have great panels. Maybe there's, you add one on uh, one speaker and they speak for like maybe a half an hour on a specific subject and they open the floor to like a great debate, which I always love to see as well. So yeah. what are the, some of the things that you you know ponder and juggle with? Cause I think you might have to push this conference more than two days. It might have to go to three. Um, maybe one day it goes to four. But I think you know you're at a point where you're busting at the seams and may have to go to another day.
6: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, we're always open to new ideas and and feedback from the people who are in attendance at our event. Um, our speakers, our partners, uh, our delegates always have such incredible ideas for you know how can we make this event bigger and better each year. Um, I I know that um, having the virtual option is something that we had never really pursued until COVID happened. And I, I know there was a lot of negativity surrounding COVID, but I think it allowed us the opportunity to kind of reset and and reevaluate, you know, how can we maybe do this a little differently? And so um, having even some of our speakers who aren't able to travel participate via Zoom, it, you know, maybe it doesn't provide the same sort of networking opportunity, but it still allows for those ideas to be shared and that dialogue to happen. And so um, that's definitely something that um, we've looked into as far as live streaming and, and how are we able to kind of uh, unite those who can't physically be with us um, on, in a in a digital space. Um, I think even the progression of panels, uh, as you mentioned, having maybe some some presentations uh, on very specific topics, I think that would be a great option. Um, we've never done the, uh, the conflicting panels where it's like, oh, I wanna see that, but like it happens at the same time as this, so I'm gonna pick or choose. We've always had everything kind of run in one um, steady flow so that no one feels like they're missing out. But we have contemplated, you know, are we catering some panels for maybe a specific demographic and then catering other panels to, to other people. Uh, and that's always something that we've discussed as well. Um, over the course of the, the years, we've included a case competition into the the event. So we do have students participating in that again, this year, that's something we always look to grow um, and, and, Again, that case is a real world problem that there actually is not a solution to at this at this I, moment. I love
1: I love case studies, so I'm a fan. They're
6: so fun, and and it's great because uh, these students from universities and colleges um, are able to you know provide these cool ideas, these new ideas, these innovative thoughts, and um, provide it to people who are actually the decision makers for the company that's having this issue. And so that's been something that I think we will continue to grow with. Um, Expanding, of course, to multiple days is always something that uh, we've talked about. I mean, we kick off with our our networking reception on uh, Thursday, November 10th this year. Um, We have a keynote interview with Brian Burke interviewing Jessica, um, Jessica Berman, who is the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League. So that's kind of our first kind of marquee. Welcome back. Hello um, come mix and mingle, but then also, you know, hear this, this great story. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Jessica Berman, she has been an executive at the NHL. She has been the deputy commissioner of the NLL, the National Lacrosse League, and then has moved on to be the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League. So quite a, an amazing, um, amount of accolades in her career. And so we're, we're kicking things off with her. That's something that we hadn't done, um, in the past, um, and then we move into, you know, two action packed days, the Friday, uh, November 11th and Saturday, November 12th of different topics, again, spanning from sponsorship to marketing to um, literally everything in between on the business side. And then, of course, the, the on field side with the analytics and athlete development and um, best practices on the team operation side. And so. Um, yeah, to your point, we might be expanding to, uh, to even more days moving forward, but it's just a case of, you know, what's, where's the hunger, where's the need, where's the demand and, you know, what are we not currently covering? I mean, never, when we first started this event, esports was not really a thing. And now we have an esports panel and sport betting wasn't legal in Canada up until, you know, a year ago. So, um, that's something that, um, is now kind of the, dis- the discussion. And I, I remember we, we integrated the, uh, the sport betting panel last year when it had just been kind of, okay, we're allowed to do this, or we're, we're starting to be allowed to do this. How are we all kind of progressing? And, and now, you know, everyone is in the, the sport betting space. And um so it's, it's cool from my perspective to see how the panels have changed um how the the, um, diversity of our panels and our, our panelists has changed over the years. Uh, we have a lot more women than we have ever had before, which I mean, myself as a woman, I love to see that. Uh, and, uh, and it's been great to see, uh, again, the, the inclusivity of, um, you know, people within um, the DEI space or um, having, you um, people with different backgrounds, different opinions, different walks of life, and and having them all come together in this space, celebrating, you know, something that we love, which is the sport business world, um, but providing a platform for so many different experiences and and opinions to be shared. And so uh, moving forward, there's definitely um, a hunger on our end to continue to evolve and continue to uh, create those inclusive spaces and debate the hot topics and um, provide a platform for you know, everything within the sport world to be covered. And I know it's hard to do in two days. So yes, definitely something we may have to circle back to and, and expand upon moving forward.
1: Well, Patrice, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it for everyone out there. It is held on November 10th to the 12th in Toronto, the Western Harbour Castle, the 15th annual Primetime Sports Entertainment Conference. Uh, We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be back right after these important messages
0: welcome back to hockey prospect radio
1: here's shane malloy and brad allen we're back and powered by power player hockey player development software at the PowerPlayer.com. we're now in our regular segment of it's all mental with dr kevin willis sports psychologist and mental coach for many hockey players the junior and levels above Dr. Willis, thank you Thank you for coming on our show. We always appreciate it.
7: I love doing this, yes.
1: So this week, as we continue on with your book, uh, Grit, Grind, and Mind, uh, in Chapter 3, this chapter is fascinating, and this section partic- particularly for me is about perception. And the topic in this segment is evaluating personal expectations. And I always find perception fascinating um, you know, I've had the question asked me asked to me in job in a job interview is, well, what would your friends say about you? And I'm like, which friend? Because they're all going to say uh-huh. something different. Because I mean something different to each one of my friends, um, and each of us brings something to our individual relationships. What so like it's very much in tune with your own brain chemistry and you're friends with people for a long, if you're friends with somebody for a long time, I think, well, biologically you are providing something to them and they're providing something to you that you need. Like you yeah. need that. Yeah. It's not just like I like him cause he's a good guy or he's, she's a great, she's a great person. There's actually like a biological need there. So I think that always like, you know, perception and evaluating personal expectations do you find in the younger players uh, specifically that, you know, they have a hard time evaluating their own personal expectations or interpreting those personal expectations from other people because they, they simply just don't have the well-rounded life experience? That sometimes it's necessary to do that. now sometimes there's some unicorns out there that kids I'm like, I swear I'm speaking to a 50 year old who's been yeah. like a, a world traveler but you know that's a bit of more of a rarity from you know from your, you know personal experience and you know in, in the clinical standpoint um, speak to a little bit of that circumstance.
7: Well, I think, I think the th- most important thing, and, and we talked a little bit about this last week, and this idea of perception is sort of self-awareness, right? Do I know who I am? Do I know what I bring to the table? Do I, am, I, am I honest and am, am I realistic about who I am and what I can do? Because there's a, a fair amount of frustration and anxiety that can result if I'm, if I'm sort of clueless as to my ability or as to my potential you know in certain circumstances and so the young person i find maybe doesn't get so so hung up in that and when i say young i mean you know your wees and and maybe even down down your squirts and stuff like that but i think once you start getting into you know that banam age group and your 14 15 16 year olds you you better know who you are you better have taken some time and been honest about it as to who you are, what you can do, what you can accomplish and where you can go in this game. And so what I do is I, I just help these people learn how to check in. That You'll hear me say that a thousand times. Check in with yourself. Check in with yourself. And what I mean is I need you to just take a minute and and just check in with your feelings. Check in with your thoughts. Check in with where you're at in this moment right now because you're getting ready to do something, whether it's to play a game or to practice or, you know, hit the gym or whatever it is. If you want to be if you want to be optimal in that situation, then you need to be able to check in with yourself and, and know who you are and what you're doing now, as far as the expectations go. Oh my gosh. I think I would say almost all of the uh, frustrations that I find in, in hockey, well in anything, but I, you know, specifically in hockey are around this idea of expectations, right? Because we, we, we expect things, right? We we are going into a situation and we believe this is how it's going to turn out. And if you've lived, you know, even a few years on this earth, you know that a lot of times that's not what happens. There, there are a lot of times when the thing that I expect to happen doesn't happen. And so are you able to deal with that? Now, obviously the expectation going in is going to sort of set the bar and your ability to sort of handle Um, Whether you were able to hit that expectation or you maybe fell short or maybe you blew past it, um, your ability to sort of manage that is what sort of plays into future expectations. But, you know, I I think, you know, with you guys and, and your ability to scout and your ability to see the best in players, it's interesting what they see in themselves and what they're expecting to bring to the ice, you know, every time they they step on the rink.
8: Uh, thanks for coming on, Kevin. One thing I, I find really interesting about expectations is what happens when unreal, unrealistic expectations can develop frustration, and then that frustration can lead to a de- not only a decrease in performance, but overall burnout. Can you talk about expectations and how they correlate to a burnout
7: effect for a hockey player? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because it's, it's such a fine line between a high expectation and an unrealistic expectation. A high expectation is really pulling the best out of out of a player. Right. It's really getting the most that they have. It's, it's forcing them to work hard and to to go into those uncomfortable areas because we think you have it. So that that high expectation is something that I never want to discourage ever. I really need people to set high expectations and go for it. Right. But it's, it's, it's pretty easy just to sort of go a little bit too far. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, but who, who has ever done that? Right. Who has ever accomplished what you believe you can accomplish right now? So now we're into this unrealistic realm and those, you know, Folks that don't that don't understand that balance between a high expectation and unrealistic expectation, you're exactly right, Brad. You can you can burn people out, you can crush their confidence, you can get you can get them to give up. Even when they're so close, they, with just a little bit of effort, they can they can, you know, cross that finish line, so to speak, but for whatever reason, they they just quit. Right as they get there, and they don't know otherwise. So, you know, I talk about high expectations. I talk about low expectations. They can be just as damaging, right? Not pushing yourself hard enough, not trying to get the most out of yourself because maybe you have low self-esteem, or maybe you're just, you know, having a bad day. Um, but low expectations and unrealistic unrealistic expectations, I think, are killers. High expectations are my favorite, and and I think the way you know it's a high expectation is that it stretches you, right? It stretches you to your max but it doesn't break you. It doesn't break you. And I think that's super important as well.
1: I find that this subject matter really fascinating, you know, not only just internally, of course, but then, especially if you like you end up having children and you're as a parent, you have your expectations for your child Um, but then you have, you know, you better recognize, and I think being a parent is no different than being a coach or an evaluator. Like you're in a position of evaluating uh, a person and not forcing what you think, um, should be pushed upon them and allowing that, that journey to sort of unfold in itself, but then just mentor them through their process and so that they can evaluate their own personal expectations effectively instead of having just this crazy notion of what you're going to do and it's so uneven
7: well the the thing about super high expectations coming from the outside is that the player will sort of adopt that they're they're thinking well if my my dad thinks i can do that my coach thinks i can do that my mom thinks i can do that if my my line mate thinks i can do that then I I should be able to do that. Right. Well, and so maybe you bump your expectation up and that's okay. If it's bumping it up and making it high, high, that stretches you, but what if you bump it up and now it's unrealistic. And I hate to say this and parents are going to get pissed at me, but I think parents, because they don't understand this game, they've not been on the ice. They've not done this. Not, not, not all. Obviously there's a lot of parents that have played hockey and understand the game, but they're also, you know, that was years and years and years ago. And unfortunately, our memory isn't quite as clear uh, down the road when we've got kids. And so what ends up happening is that we sort of set these expectations on top of these kids because we want them to, to strive and to reach for these big things. But if the kid is not understanding that, oh, this, that's within me, that's, that's possible, then that, that high expectation feels like a weight, feels like an anchor right? Literally dragging down. So it has the opposite effect. Uh, so yeah, expectations come from inside of us and it comes from outside of us. And it's just the awareness. We've got to understand that our expectations, you know, if we're ever frustrated, if we're ever pissed off, whatever, stop and think, okay, so what did I think was going to happen here? i bet you a dollar a donut that what you thought was going to happen and what's actually happening, there's a giant gap. And that's why you're frustrated. That's why you're irritated. That's why you're anxious. Right. And it's just a matter of, of being aware, aware of that and then being able to manage that.
1: We're going to take a quick break on hockey prospect radio and continue with our segment of it's all mental with Dr. Kevin Willis, right after these important messages.
9: Did you know you can open Upper Deck hockey packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and Pack.com.
10: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
1: What does every competitive hockey player, no matter their age or ability level, need from their coaches? They need knowledge that will help them improve in specific areas and they need to know how they're doing. PowerPlayer brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches, players, and parents. A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game.
11: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players.
0: prospect news and analysis this is hockey prospect radio with shane malloy and brad allen
1: we're back and powered by power player hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com we're speaking with dr kevin willis in our segment it's all mental he's a sports psychologist and mental coach as we continue through his book grit, grind, and mind, uh, chapter three, we're discussing perception in the sub uh, topic we're discussing. This one is um, examining motivations. Uh, Dr. Willis, this is an area that I'm also like, extremely interested in, not just from like, from a personal standpoint, but trying to evaluate somebody else's motivations, um, particularly like, in you know brad and mine circumstance where these aren't players that we see every day they're not part of our communities so we're having to dig deep into them and watch you know observe them try to have you know we have conversations with them just trying to dig up all these different you know little tidbits about this player to understand what their motivations are and honestly it's exceptionally difficult um talk about, you know, from a clinical standpoint of what you do about how, you know, you help them examine their own personal motivations versus obviously what's going on around them, because that can sometimes impact how, like what their motivations are.
7: Yeah. I think the motivation is, is huge. I call it drive, right? I think it's your drive to pursue this, this tough sport, right? Which, which anybody that's, it's, sort of experienced it, it's, it is a long, hard, tough journey. And so if you don't, if you aren't motivated and, you know, I talk about passion, well, what is passion? How's that compared to motivation? Well, passion drives the motivation, but motivation drives the performance. It drives the activity, the behavior, right? The actions that you take um, to, to achieve those things that you want. So, you know, simple, the, the simple um, sort of, um, Breakout of motivation is internal and external, right? The external is the dollar. The dollar is driving me to do this, or you know, I want to, I want to, I want to be the best player on the team. So I, I'm comparing myself to others. So it's sort of an external driver versus the internal driver, what we call intrinsic motivation. That's the one where all the power comes from. I do this because I love it. I do this whether anybody is watching or not. I do this, you know, whether I'm, I'm the best player or not. I do this because I love it. And I think when I work with young people, my, my job is early is to get them just to recognize that there are, you know, motivation comes from two sources, either outside or inside. Um, and it's the, the volume, you sort of speak, the, the volume of motivation can impact um, your ability to be successful, to be consistent in your sport so um I think that's where I start but then obviously you know there are so many facets of motivation I I, I could talk for hours on motivation but it is the gas in the engine that makes everything go Kevin,
8: okay, well, we just had Pat Malloy on for a segment and his closing remarks on Mason McTavish were this is a very driven player and to to me um That really matters. As a scout, one of the biggest things we look for in terms of mental makeup is off-ice drive. And the reason we look for it is because it is what is When you look back on drafts, the players that basically um, went above our expectations are always the most driven players because they're the ones that seem the most able to learn and adapt over the years to get to the NHL. Can you talk about the significance of drive and how it plays a role in, in not only motivational process, but the learning process.
7: Well, I think motivation is, like I said, it is the driver. That's why I call it drive. If, if, if you ever read any of my stuff, I always talk about drive, drive, drive. It is motivation, right? That's what I'm talking about. But I think you're on to something when you talk about their, their drive, their, their drive to be able to stay the course, to do the hard things. Um, and, and to, to never give up. Right. But, but there are, There's also this aspect of drive and motivation that you have to be careful about. And that is, you know, you can become perfectionistic in your motivation. You can become driven to the point that nothing is ever good enough, right? So now we're starting to stray into areas where that that high drive could actually have negative effects on your performance, right? And that's one of the things I always try to get my guys to do is, you know, there, there's this idea that there are right things and wrong things, good things and bad things. And I try to get away from that because there are so many situations where all these things play out that I can't ever say that this is actually good or bad. It's, it's really comes down to, is it working for you or is it working against you, right? So in a situation where somebody who's driven, and, and they they, they want to achieve, they want to, you know, to reach their goals, but because they're so driven that they never give themselves a break. They never let off the gas. If they ever stumble or if they ever struggle, then they push even harder, right? And, and we know that sometimes you've got to let off the gas, right? Sometimes you've got to back off a little bit. So that motivation, it has to be in context with the situation. It has to be in context with sort of the overall sort of goals, right? The purpose of where I'm trying to go with this, but I love drive. Drive is a great indicator of, of how far somebody can go, but it can also be um, a, a red flag. If I see that their drive is actually creating pressure, unnecessary pressure, uh, and, and in my book, I talk a lot about undermotivated players and over-motivated players. There's actually pros and cons to both, right? Under-mo- under-motivated have a tendency to be sort of chill and more relaxed in pressure situations. They know they've got the skill and the ability to, to see it through, so they're not so tense. Over-motivated, sometimes they'll squeeze the stick and they, and they really get in their own heads when when you know push comes to shove. So there's a lot to this, and I suspect that we'll sort of break out this idea of motivation in areas uh, you know when we talk further into uh the book but motivation i think for you guys um it's really what are they doing what are they doing you know you can't tell me you're motivated you have to show me you're motivated and that goes back to what we talked about last week uh it's really all in behavior it's not about your words it's about your actions
1: yeah kevin i'm glad that you brought that up the tendencies for over or under motivated players because as I'm reading, as I'm listening to both of you and I'm reading through like the bullet points of over-motivated um, and undermotivated, it certainly applies in many cases to both Brad and I, um, you know, I think at times um, and Brad can speak to this as well. We can be a little bit obsessive about what we do, um, you know, and, You know, I've I've, as I'm reading through this, I like well um, with failure, blame self for not working hard enough. Responds to mistakes by overanalyzing, being over overtly critical. I guess when you're like so like passionate about something that you know maybe from our perspective that we can kind of go too far in being so motivated to do the best thing and not being able to take a break and stand back, not just a break for a minute or two, but actually take a break for a while, like maybe weeks or a yeah. month and being able to like yeah. step back and reassess what you're actually doing.
7: Yeah. Well, I think it's funny. I, I, you know, some, I've got some friends that um, that are sports psychologists that surf. And so, you know, in, when you're surfing, you can't force it, right. The waves either there for you and you ride it or it's not, um, sometimes I just wish that, you know, folks could take that surfer mentality is it's just chill, right? Relax. Um, because too much of, of a good thing is too much, right? It, it actually, it's, it ends up being a bad thing. And again, I think don't don't get caught up in the good, bad. Don't get caught in the right, wrong. Get focused on is it working for me or not, Right. And then the only way you know that is you have to be able to check in with yourself. Right. You have to be self-aware. You have to know who you are, what makes you tick, the things that make you go, the things that make you struggle. If you have an understanding of that, then you can in any situation, you can recognize that, hey, this this external motivation is really working for me right now. But what if it went away? What if it went away? Does that mean that everything just grinds to a halt? That's what I worry about young people. Right. Right. Everything's coming from the outside. Would young people play hockey if they didn't get recognized, if they didn't get kudos, if they didn't get a dollar for every goal, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. But I certainly don't want to set up a situation where that's, you know, something that would come up. You know, the thing is, the thing about this game hockey, the, the reason I know that it is it is a it's a different game than a lot that, that are out there is that men's league, right? I see guys driving to the rink. Their game doesn't start till 1230 or 1am 1 and they got to work the next day, but they're out there playing because they love this. That is internal motivation. That's intrinsic motivation. That's doing it because I love it. Um, yeah. And so if that passion isn't there, if that internal drive isn't there, it's hard to sort of surround them with those other things. But those other things work too, right? They yeah, do. Absolutely. Let's, let's be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, once again, thank you very much for coming on our show. We really appreciate great insight from your book. And from all our guests, uh, from Mark Yates as well as Pat Malloy, uh, it's been another edition of Hockey Prospect Radio. Myself, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen, and we will see you at the rink.
9: Did you know you can open Upper Deck hockey packs any time of the day from anywhere in the world? Well, if you haven't checked out Upper Deck ePack yet, you're really missing out. Open NHL trading cards from your smartphone, tablet, or computer and conduct trades with other collectors all over the world. These are not just digital cards. You can actually store cards for free on Upper Deck ePack and have them shipped to you for a nominal fee. Check out the new wave of collecting at UpperDeckEPack.com. That's Upper Deck, the letter E, and pack.com.
10: Instat Hockey offers the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide, trusted by leagues, teams, coaches, and scouts at every level of the game. There is no better choice than Instat to help in the areas of evaluation, development, and exposure for your brand. Their unmatched database saves coaches and scouts hours of time as individual player shifts and stats are pre-cut into separate playlists. Also, the option to edit, share, or download your own clips using Instat Instat's video editing tools. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more information. Instat, the Institute of Statistics.
1: What does every competitive hockey player, no matter their age or ability level, need from their coaches? They need knowledge that will help them improve in specific areas and they need to know how they're doing. PowerPlayer brings clarity to the development process and helps build stronger relationships and trust between coaches, players, and parents. A feedback platform built around performance evaluation system, PowerPlayer helps coaches provide individualized instruction, performance metrics, and ratings, and comments and video directly to players. Visit thepowerplayer.com today and get in the feedback game.
11: Outside Edge has built a reputation for guiding hockey players toward their potential and provides on- and off-ice development programs for hockey players.